Well, let's uh, open up to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Starting at uh, last week, we focused just on verse 11 of chapter 23. So we're going to start at 23, provide a little bit of context because that provides our understanding of what's going on in this next section. So we're going to read the 23, 11 through 35. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that being Paul, and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they have killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked to give me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him have bound themselves together by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are, are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of his centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearsmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man who was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned about him learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to, to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So... The soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antiparis. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we talked about how Jesus, uh, in verse 11, was with Paul on a night, a dark night of his soul, a place where he had just hit the bottom of the bucket. Emotionally beat up, spiritually beat up, physically beat up, 
He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to accomplish this mission of going on to Rome because of everything that had been happened. The church had not responded in Jerusalem the way that he had hoped. They had not received the gift that, the way that they had hoped. In fact, he had to step in and enter into this weird kind of relationship so that hopefully he could win over some of the Jews, so that there could be unity. And Paul was discouraged. We got chapter 23, verse 11, where on that night, Jesus stood by him. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Or as we saw last week, take heart. Take heart. For as you have given witness to me here in Jerusalem, so you must also do in Rome. You could say, and many of you would, could say, man, Paul has just the worst luck, right? The worst luck. He's just gone down this road, and man, this happens. He has just the, the worst luck going out. I wish that words like luck just kill me. When I even I hear brothers and sisters in Christ say, man, I've got rotten luck. I have got the worst luck. Or I, I'm just having a bad day. Just a bad day. Or, or, well, whatever will be, will be. Have you ever used that phrase? I have. Whatever may be, may be. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. And you probably heard people say that. Maybe it doesn't bother you like the way it does bother me. Perhaps you've said it yourself or similar things. But all those declarations are at odds with biblical truth. Because each statement goes against the truth of God's providence, God's care. And there's no such thing as luck or pure chance. If you have a bad day, it's because the Lord ordained these circumstances for your benefit swallow that for a little bit if you have a bad day it's because the lord has ordained these circumstances for your benefit bad days just don't happen whatever will be will be reflects our circumstances as being caused by some impersonal fate something happening outside well whatever will be will be the bible often teaches and illustrates the doctrine of God's providence. And don't worry, I will give you a definition later for those of you who love to write down definitions to take notes. The, the Bible illustrates and teaches God's providence and it should be a great source of comfort for those of us who are in Christ and also a means of instruction for how do we live and view the circumstances in our lives. It means that God... God's providence means that God is not distant, passive, or unconcerned with the daily events of our lives. God is a God who deeply cares and is involved in the daily circumstances of our lives. What we'll see is that God, our, our loving and caring Heavenly Father, He is actively governing the daily events of our lives, usually behind the scenes, without in, in any way robbing us of the duty of making responsible choices. The story contained before us does not give us any exposition of biblical doctrine, no exhortations, no strong encouragements, there's no imperatives or commands given in here. Rather, it illustrates for us the doctrine taught and illustrated elsewhere of God's providence. His providence. The governing verse for the whole thing is verse 11, where God promises Paul he must, he must witness in Rome also. God has declared his sovereign purpose, and we'll see it unfold in the chapters ahead. So this morning, we're going to learn, and we're going to see this theme unfold, and it's going to be two points. The theme is this. When we face trials and opposition in our service for the Lord, we should trust Him to protect us by His providence and to work out His sovereign plan for our lives. When trials and opposition come, 
It's not an if. It's a when. When they come. You see, God declares that Paul will bear witness in Rome. He says this is going to happen. But what happens? Over 40 Jewish terrorists determine that they are willing to die in this process. They will not eat and they will not drink until they assassinate Paul. The question is, guess who prevails? Who prevails? It just so happens that Paul's nephew gets wind of the plot and tells Paul. It just so happens that Paul sends him on to the commander who says, bring, bring him to me. I want to hear about it. It just so happens he is willing to listen to this boy's story and act upon it. It just so happens that he calls 470 armed troops to escort Paul safely to the Roman governor, Felix, at Caesarea. God wins. God wins. And there's a couple practical lessons for us. First, we will face trials and we will face opposition in our service for the Lord. And the reality is this. About this is that no servant of Christ, no disciple of Jesus Christ, no believer, no one found in Christ is exempt from trials and persecution. That goes against every North American warm Christian fuzzy that you have. I gave my life to Christ and he's going to protect me. He's going to be over me and everything. I should be exempt, right? From any kind of pain, sorrow, frustration, trials. In fact, anything that happens in the church that is painful or in opposition to me, man, that must mean that God's not here. The reality is that no one is exempt from trials or opposition. Paul was not what you would call an ordinary Christian, right? God has not used any other man in the history of the church as he has used the Apostle Paul. That being the case, you would think that God in his wisdom, God in his wisdom would sit up on high and grant this great man of God that he chooses to move the church and set the course of all the church history. You would think that God would grant him smooth sailing, wouldn't you? Man, Paul, he's my servant that I've chosen to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, you and me. I am going to grease that, that mode so that it just happens. Everywhere he goes, he's going to have a, a smooth tongue and everybody will receive the gospel. And every town he comes into, every, every judicial court that he comes in contact, everyone that he touches, smooth sailing. But if you read your New Testament and you've been listening carefully to this series in Acts, you will know that that is far from the truth. Far from the truth. In fact, listen to Paul's recounting of everything that he has gone through from 2 Corinthians 11. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. So the list is not complete. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. If Paul was one of God's choicest servants, why is it that we think that we should be exempt from trials or pain or difficulties? The reality is that none of us, no one here, is exempt from any trials. And yet, often believers are surprised when they encounter trials in the course of their service for the Lord. And maybe that's true for you. Maybe one of the reasons that you're even part of the Missio Dei family 
is because you have gone through a trial in your service. And you are surprised that it happens in the church. The reality is, you should not be surprised. You should not be surprised. Sometimes we think, man, if I was living for myself, that would be one thing, right? Man, if I was living for my own gain and my own issues, I would really expect God's hand of discipline to be on me and that, that God has every right. But here I am just trying to faithfully serve the Lord and now this happens. What is the deal? The deal is this. The deal is that God promises none of his serv- servants a pass from exempt or given an exemption from trials and opposition. In fact, his word, his word often describes the Christian life as warfare. How's that feel for comfort? Our Christian life is described as warfare, hardly a promise for, for smooth sailings or even an, uh, an easy existence. So whenever you attempt to do anything to serve the Lord, even if it's behind the scenes or up in front of the body of Christ and having a head-on face leadership position, you should expect that the enemy will oppose you and will be trying to take you out of service. It's the reality. It goes with the turf. But we also need to learn that trials and oppositions that we face often come from the religious rather than the unbelievers. Paul's opposition here was from the Jews, but it was not your run-of-the-mill synagogue-going Jew, but rather from the Jewish leaders. These zealots who intended to kill Paul were engaged in a religious activity fasting to show their zeal and their dedication to God. They no doubt justified their evil aim by aiming that cause that is so important that it doesn't matter what means they used to achieve it. They wanted to put this renegade Jew who went around the Roman Empire telling Gentiles that they could come to know God and yet not become like a Jew. And they wanted to put an end to this man. If they couldn't silence him through legal means, they would have to kill him. If some of them died at the hands of the Roman guards who were protecting Paul, so be it. If it required deception to the Roman commander to to pull it off, then they would use deception. The necessary end justified the wicked means. Luke skillfully describes the kindness and the lawful protection found in the Roman commander with the murderous conniving of these religious Jews. The pagan man took, kindly took Paul's nephew by the hand, pulled him aside and said, tell me, what do you know? And he listened. And he could have scoffed at the wild imagination of this young boy, but he didn't do that. Rather, He used his authority given to him to protect this Roman citizen so he could have a fair trial. This Roman commander, in in a letter to the governor, kind of bent the truth in a bit in verse 27, but he also declared Paul innocent, completely innocent of breaking the Roman law. And if Paul's enemies had a valid case against him, they would not have had to resort to violence. When people attack a man, it's often because they cannot refute doctrine. And that doctrine convicts them of their sinfulness before God. The application for us here is don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when your strongest critics and opponents for your service to the Lord come from within the church. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that it comes from within and not from outside. There's many within our evangelical circles or the the church that use, simply use God as a covering for serving their own selfish purposes. Right? They use the church 
or they use God for their own selfish purposes. They teach the Bible because it, it makes them feel important or it propels their agenda and gives them a public platform. They serve in some capacity because they love the recognition and the praise that they get from culture because they have so identified with culture. And they follow Jesus to the extent that he meets their needs. But at the heart level, they have never dethroned self and enthroned Christ. So you see, the stumbling block of the cross was the heart of the Jewish opposition to Paul. If we were not sinners who deserve God's eternal wrath, then Jesus the Savior did not have to die for us. To receive him as Savior requires that we acknowledge that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath. And it's ridiculous to say that we can receive Jesus as Savior, but that submitting to him as Lord is just absolutely optional. If he is the eternal God who took on flesh to die for our sins, then we owe him everything. So the first lesson that we need to understand is that we will face trials and we will face opposition in our service to the Lord. But secondly, and this is where the providence piece is going to be coming in, when trials and oppositions do hit, we should trust God to protect us by his providence and to work out his sovereign plan for our lives. The Lord had just appeared to Paul and told him that he must go on to Rome to bear witness for him in Rome. And as I mentioned last week, so far as the text shows us, the Lord didn't say a word about the impending assassination plot for his life. Paul had no clue that that was coming. And he didn't know about any of the other trials that would be coming. He didn't know about the being shipwrecked. He didn't know about all these little things that are going to be coming that we saw in 2 Corinthians. He just, God just announces his plan that Paul must bear witness for him in Rome and leaves it for Paul, seemingly by happenstance, to discover the plot for his life. Paul's nephew, and this just so happens to be the only time in the New Testament that we find out that Paul has extended family. We didn't even know that he had a sister up until this point. We didn't know he had a nephew. This is the only point. But Paul's nephew happens to be in the right place at the right time to learn about this plot. Happens to be. God uses this very event to save Paul's life. We can see here that God has a sovereign plan for each of us. A sovereign plan for each of us that we would glorify him in the sphere that he has appointed for us. God has a plan for you in the sphere, the area of influence that he has given to you. How many of you have ever heard of uh, the four spiritual laws? For Some of you have. Four Spiritual Laws. Back in 1952, a man by the name of Bill Bright founded an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. And he wrote in 52 a, a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And the, this is what they are. One, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Two, man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. Three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. And fourthly, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. So the first spiritual law, according to Bill Bright, is... God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Whether he calls you to be a bricklayer or a businessman, a school teacher, a missionary, a, a truck driver, a preacher, his plan is that you would live in such a manner that your life brings glory and honor to his name. That we be a reflection of what God has done and is doing and we reflect what God is doing out as we saw last week, the Lord promised his exiled peoples 
through the prophet Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Or as the prophet Isaiah declares to the nations that were threatening the people of Israel, he said, Isaiah said this, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Wicked men may plan to destroy God's servants. But unless God permits it, as part of His sovereign plan, they will not succeed. God's plans always, always, always overrule the plans of men. No matter how powerful these men or organizations or governments are, God's plans always overrule the plans of men. Even for kings, God says this in Proverbs 21, and I love this picture. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. I love it. So, you know, we, we put a lot of hope in, in governments and presidents and kings and whoever, despots that might be ruling over us. But you know what the reality is? The heart of a king is like water in God's hand. And God moves that stream wherever he so wills. Proud men may plan out their lives, but Proverbs 21 says, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Nothing. Nothing. And this means that no force, no matter how evil, this would have been a, a great, for, great one for 9-11, no force, no matter how evil, can ever thwart, impede, slow down God's sovereign plan for us. None. There were more than 40 men who bound themselves with an oath to murder Paul. And they were terrorists to the nth degree. 40 men, all found in one city. The literal Greek rendering of verse uh, 14 of chapter 23 is this. We have anathematized ourselves with an anathema to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. In other words, we have cursed ourselves with a curse. That's pretty powerful stuff. I'm cursing myself. In other words, to hell I go if I don't kill this man. I'm cursing myself with a curse. So you knew they were dead serious, literally. Dead serious. They knew that killing Paul while he was under the Roman guard would probably mean that at least some of them would die in the attempt. And if the others were apprehended, they too would be tried and killed because they were attacking Roman soldiers who were protecting a Roman citizen. These men were like Roman or modern suicide bombers. They were willing to die for their cause. But I love what David declares in, in Psalm 2. He says this, Why do the nations rage? And people plot in vain. You hear kind of this, this is silly. Why, why do you even try? The kings of the earth set, them, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed ones saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The whole Lord holds them in derision. It's like, you silly fools. Have you no clue who I am? Plot away. Come up with your evil plans. The reality is I'm laughing at you. And I'm going to hold you in derision, confusion. Sometimes God's sovereign plans do include martyrdom. As, as it did for later for the Apostle Paul. And as it has for hundreds of thousands of saints down throughout history. But when the wicked succeed in killing the Lord's servants, it's not because God slipped up or was taking a nap. It is because, only because God has a higher plan and he permits it. 
As Isaiah 54, 17 says, no weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. We can take great comfort in the fact that no evil person, no evil government, no evil force can thwart God's sovereign plan for our lives. Nothing. We also can learn that God's providence is the means by which he carries out his sovereign plans. God's providence is the means that he carries out his plans. Now, confession. The word providence is, if you look in the back of your Bible, you're going to look for a quick reference, cross-reference for the word providence. It's not found there. It's not found in the Bible, but the doctrine is stated and illustrated as a major theme throughout the entire Bible. In fact, the book of Esther, the book of Esther, it is the major theme for Esther, which, is, which, never, which never mentions God directly. Never mentions God directly. And yet his providential hand is behind the twists and the turns of the story, preserving his chosen people from destruction. Deus denied that God's providence by asserting that he created the world, but he is no longer actively involved in it. They just say God created and sent things into motion. Now he sits back and he has no direct involvement. Others say that God is active in the events of the world, but he's not sovereign over evil. Rather, evil is a result of free will. And that, that sounds really good and that feels really nice, but the Bible teaches that God is actively controlling and directing, directing even evil events and evil people in such a way as to accomplish his sovereign will. It feels a little odd, doesn't it? And yet, he is not the author of evil, nor is he responsible for it. But no evil person or act changes or thwarts God's sovereign will. Here comes your definition. Here's how Wayne Grudem defines God's providence. And you don't have to freak out and write all these, this long definition out uh, right away because it's, I'm going to break it down for you. This is how he defines providence. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. John Calvin does it a little simpler. This is his. Providence means not that by which God idly observes from heaven what takes place on earth, but that by which, as keeper of the keys, he governs all events. He governs all events. So I'm, but I'm going to use uh, Grudem because I'm a little bit more complicated. To break it down, God's providence means preservation. Preservation in that God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the, the properties which with he has created them. Hebrews 1.3 says this, that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things. The Greek word translated uphold means to, to carry or to bear. Grudem says it does not simply mean sustain, but has a sense of active, purposeful control over the thing being carried from one place to another. Colossians 1.7 also asserts that all things hold together in Christ. All things hold together in Christ. If Jesus were to let go, if so to speak, if Jesus was to say, all right, I'm going to take a vacation here. I've been really in control of this whole thing and I've been holding all things together for a while. I'm just going to take a moment and let go. If he would do that, the entire universe would instantly disintegrate. 
all things are held together in Christ. Therefore, God did not just design the, the laws of nature and the laws of science and step away from them. Rather, he actively maintains such laws. But God's providence also means concurrence in that God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. This includes God, God's causing things to happen that we would merely say are natural occurrences. Natural occurrences. How often do we look at a rainstorm or a snow storm or frost and just say, oh, man, it's raining today. The reality is it is God who causes it to rain. It is God who causes it to snow. It is God who causes the rivers to go up and to go down. It is God who is in charge of the heat by day and the cool by night. It is God who is in charge of the frost that we see outside. He's the one who causes the wind to blow and the lightning to flash. It's God who gives food to the wild animals and to the birds. It's God who governs what we call random chance events, such as even the casting of lots. Also, God causes things to happen where his creatures play a role. For example, I might water and I might fertilize my lawn, but ultimately, it's God who causes them to grow. I might think that I'm pretty wise in knowing the right amount of nitrogen and this and that, you know, however many numbers are on the bag. Know the right prescription for my lawn. I might even water it at the right times, but ultimately, it is God who causes the grass to grow. I can put water in our freezer, but it is God who causes the water to freeze. Not frigid air. It is God who causes the water to freeze. God also governs human affairs. He determines the time, existence, and boundaries of nations. He sets up rulers and he takes them down. He governs every aspect of our lives, including the number of days that you and I are going to live. He is sovereign over evil, although he is not tainted in any way, nor is he responsible for it. But he uses evil men and events to carry out his sovereign plan, even as he's doing in our story. God's providence also means government. God has a direct, has a purpose in all that he does in the world and providentially governs or directs all things in order that they accomplish his purpose. Daniel 4, 35 says this. He does according to his will. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see, God, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. The doctrine of God's providence is a very practical and comforting doctrine for our daily existence. If, if you and I lived and really believed in a world of random chance, as some of us really do, random chance, it is the most scary place to live. It's, it's, it's almost you saying God has no clue as to what's going to happen next, and God has no control over what's going to happen next. That is the scariest place to ever live. You are going to walk around the rest of your life scared about any noise, about any circumstance, about your future. It is the scariest place. But the doctrine of God's providence and his care and his direction and working all these things together to accomplish his plan brings great comfort and security 
for every believer. If God was not sovereign over evil, then the terrorists who flew their airplanes into the World Trade Center and killed thousands of people, or those random crazy uh, machine gun terrorists that were in, uh, where was it, in Africa, taking over an entire mall, those are tragic, scary things. But that was nothing that God could do about? That's even more terrifying. But if even, if even evil events are under God's providence, then we know that He can work it together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. God works all things all things together. All things together. And those who have lost ones can know, have lost friends and neighbors and, and people can know that these wicked men, these terrible people have not thwarted God's ultimate plan. But rather they were inadvertently carrying out God's, God's sovereign plan for history. It's a thank you but know that you will face your judgment. So, God has a plan for each of us. Evil man, men cannot impede God's purposes. And God carries out his plan, and often it's behind-the-scenes kind of circumstances. But we can also trust God to work sovereignly through his providence. Just because God works sovereignly and through his providence does not mean that we are to be passive and do nothing. Just because God is in control and working all these things together does not mean we sit back and we take a passive role. God promised Paul that he would bear witness to him in Rome. And when Paul's nephew came to him and said, Uncle Paul, listen, here's the reality. I just heard a bunch of Jews talking together about um, their assassination plot. They're not going to eat or drink until they have killed you. And this is what they're going to do. If Paul would have said, you know what, man? God spoke to me. Here's the reality. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. God's in control. Just because God is in control does not negate your responsibility to be active. But sometimes, even some of my very strong Calvinistic brothers and sisters takes such a strong swing when it comes to our responsibility and our call to be active that they do nothing when it comes to evangelism. If there are so many people who are going to be elect and God has so willed it, it's going to happen one way or the other. I'm just going to sit back and wait. But the fallacy of that statement is that God has ordained his elect would be saved through how? Through the preaching of his word. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I will do whatever it takes so that the gospel goes out and people are reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. I will endure everything. Go back to 2 Corinthians. What did he do to endure? Man, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he had anxiety about the churches that were already in existence. He did everything, whatever it took. Paul had to suffer what he went through in order to preach the gospel to God's elect so that they would be saved. God ordains that we even pray in order to see his kingdom come, even though it will certainly come. Sometimes we, we put too much emphasis on, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. I will be done. Like, come on, God. And the reality is, it's going to happen. 
God is sovereign and in control of all these things. So hopefully no one here will ever have an assassination plot against them. For some of you, I know your anxiety would shoot through the roof knowing that there is 40 assassins out there. You will find a compound somewhere quickly. It probably isn't going to happen. But you may be in difficult circumstances. Right? Perhaps even in connection with your service to the Lord. God wants you to see Him in all of your circumstances. All of your circumstances. In the good, the bad, and the absolutely ugly. He wants to see you. He wants you to see Him in all those circumstances. He wants to see you to see Him in orchestrating all these events to fulfill His plan for your life. Not your plan for your life. His plan for your life. Harry Ironside, a Baptist preacher from yesteryear, wrote these comments on our text. And I want you to listen to them or read them carefully. God is never closer to His people than when they cannot see His face. There are times and circumstances in your life where you are just in the middle of this muck, this junk, this pain. And we often say, God, where are you in the midst of this? Why are you so far off? And God is saying, no, you don't understand. In the midst of your pain and your sorrow, your fear, your confusion, your anxiety, all that, I am even closer to you. And I am orchestrating all of these events, all of these events, for my purposes, for my will for your life. Be active, but trust that all these things are working together. All of these things are working together so we can submit to Him. We can submit to Him and His will as He deals with us in these circumstances. Does that change the way that you look at difficult circumstances in your life? I hope so. That God is our ever-present help in our time of trouble. He's ever-present. Our ever-present need is being met by His presence. He is right there with us. So don't fall into the air of just passively submitting to circumstances as, as fate or determinism were true. God expects you to use the means that He has provided as part of His providential care for you. He expects you to use the body of Christ. This is part of His means of grace for you. When you are going through hell and high water, He expects you to use the body of Christ for your encouragement and to help you see His face and to see His activity in your life. He expects you to use smaller communities, missional communities, one-on-one -on -one relationships. He expects you to be involved in His Word diving into it, eating it, devouring it. So when those circumstances come up, you can say, listen, uh-uh. No, no, no. I know what the Word of God has to say for my life. And I am safe and secure. And we need to come to terms with the voice of Satan and the lies that he tells us. Lies like, there's nothing you can do. You're helpless. 
You are who you are. You can never conquer that sin. You're hopeless. And God goes, "Uh uh-uh. You are mine. And I am deeply involved in every circumstance in your life. Come to me. Are you weary, heavy laden? Come to me and find rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Learn from me. As you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you will see that it is God who is at work in you. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work out His purposes for His good pleasure. into my head. Another means of grace that God has given us is the gift of prayer. And we tend to only pray when it's hitting the fan, right? Or breakfast, lunch, or man, I'm really tired. It's not quite hitting the mark, so I'm going to be praying. It's most of our, our mode of operations. God has given us the gift of prayer. I'm done about five minutes early. So that's considered a gift. Not the kind of gift you think it is going to do for two, three minutes. I want you to huddle together with three, four people and I want you to pray. Some of you, this is going to be some of the most awkward part of the whole sermon. You'd much rather sing out loud than pray, right? But we're going to pray together in small groups. Pray for God's providential care. Pray for God's purposes to be accomplished in you, in your family, in your friendship, in your workplace, in our church. And I'll close us in prayer and then we'll come in together for a time of communion, being reminded of the gospel. We'll respond in gratitude. So let's pray.